It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me, or you, or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. The news today Pfizer officially getting that full application in for emergency use authorization for the vaccine down to age five. This comes after we heard a couple weeks ago that the pivotal trial results showed favorable safety for this vaccine for these age groups and a strong immune response. These are two shots given three weeks apart, but it's a third of the adult dose. The FDA has set an advisory committee meeting for October 26 for its advisors to discuss uh, this vaccine for the that age group. Up until then, they'll be reviewing this application furiously along with, of course, booster applications, which they'll be discussing at the end of next week. Now, when it comes to parents' attitudes about getting their kids vaccinated, there's been a lot of polling on this. Some of the latest from the Kaiser Family Foundation shows that in September, more parents were eager to get their kids ages 5 to 11 vaccinated. 34% in September saying yes right away versus 26% in July. And that really kind of goes along with an uptick in cases in kids that we saw over the course of those months. So it's still not a majority of parents saying, yes, absolutely, right um, right away, we'll get the shot. Um, but that uh, sort of willingness seems to be increasing. All right. So that breathless report was from CNBC. And of course, they're really excited about the thought that our children might be vaccinated. You heard in the report that they're appealing to the FDA, and you're hearing this all the time, uh, to uh, give us give us, you know, trial status. We need to give this, our children this trial vaccination and we need to do it quick, quickly because we know that so many of them are, well, no, that's not true. Not, they're not really dying. I've got a stat on it. It's pretty amazing how few children under the age of uh, 18 have died from COVID, uh, but they're viewing it as an emergency and the FDA is willing and able. And, and if there's any way possible, they will give approval. You can take that to the bank. Last week, we talked to Senator Ron Johnson, and he's the first person that I heard say that the vaccine that we are currently giving, the one that was supposedly had received FDA approval, was never really approved. It did not, that particular vaccine did not receive approval and if that's the case, that changes a lot of things. I've asked Tracy Miller to join us this morning. She's the vice president for the American Conservative Union's Action, excuse me, Action Fund. And uh, Tracy, you guys have been uh, actually working on this, as I understand it. So, is it true? I mean, is it true that the FDA has not really given full approval to the vaccine that's being used? So. Um there are two vaccines, and this is the primary problem that the American public is facing when it comes to making an educated decision about whether or not to receive the vaccine, which vaccine to receive. Um, one of the things that has been so confusing in the way that the FDA issued both the emergency use authorization and the full FDA approval and licensure, which are two distinct categories. So let me go back and repeat that. There are two distinct categories for two distinct vaccines that currently exist. 
One vaccine, which is the one that we've heard called Comirnaty, has received the full FDA licensure and approval. That vaccine, according to the FDA's own documentation, is not currently available in the United States. The second vaccine, the one that we all heard about from Pfizer starting back in 2020, which is the BioNTech vaccine, is a legally distinct and separate entity. And that one is still operating under emergency use authorization. And this is what Senator Johnson has really taken the lead in trying to get out to the American public. But so many individuals are completely unaware that there are two distinct items that we're discussing, and they have two distinct statuses. But uh, so, I'm, Tracy, just to drill down, where is the uh, the what did you call it? Com, com, community. Com, we'll say it again. C-O-M-I, it's community. C O M I R N E T Y. Okay, uh, where is that being used? So that so again, this is I've been trying to find the data points on exactly where it is available. What I've been able, it, there's not a lot of information. What I know for certain according to the FDA's own documentation, so this is um, in, in their paperwork, it is not available in the United States. It appears as if it is available in, the, in Europe, the U.K. primarily, but what I can say with certainty, because the FDA's own documentation says there is not availability in the United States. You know, I find myself wondering, how... How is it the FDA would be in the business of approving a vaccine that's not even used here? That just seems strange, like it's out of their purview. But that's kind of off the track. I want to, I want to, this is stunning to me because I understood that the American military was starting to require our soldiers and airmen and seamen all to receive the vaccine because the FDA had approved, had given final approval to this vaccine. So how can this be? Sandy, what you just touched on is so critical, and it's difficult for folks to, hear. I think, hear this as opposed to see it in writing. So just as an sidebar, anybody who's listening to this interview that's interested in having me send them the paperwork so that they can read this for themselves should feel free to email me at info at acruaction.com. That's info at acruaction.com. I have done a really simple infographic so that folks can see the progression of when community was approved, the fact that the emergency use authorization for the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, which is the one that is available currently in the United States, that emergency use use authorization was renewed on August 23rd, 2021, and here's to your point, on August 24th, 2021, that is when the Department of Defense issued their memorandum mandating military vaccination. And in that memorandum, there is a sentence in their own words that explicitly states, only vaccines with full FDA licensure can be required of American service members. Yet, we have service members that as of last Friday, October 8th, were beginning to be separated from service 
another way of saying that is fired because they were not fully vaccinated, yet they have these service members, these military men and women who have dedicated their lives and their careers to our country, physically have no way of complying with this memorandum, yet not only are they being threatened with what we would call being fired, it's far more serious than that. They are facing dishonorable discharge and in some cases court-martial, yet they are incapable of complying with what the DOD regulates. So uh, this is stunning to me because I have a lot of military listeners and I've been, you know, dealing with trying to bear the burden with them of this incredible yoke that's been placed on them. And uh, it's, it's I heard from I, a young captain. He's got five children. I, I don't know if he's a captain. He's actually he's an officer of some sort. And um, he's, well, he that, said, I'm not yes. getting it. No. He's giving up. He's give, he says, I'm give, this is my source of income. I don't know what I'm going to do. And this, I'm sure his story is not the only one, but all right. So, th- so given no, the fact that this is not thousands. really approved, what what's the alternative? What's the recourse? Is anyone interceding for these guys? Well, Senator Ron Johnson has definitely taken the lead on this right now, and we cannot applaud him enough for the fact that he has been brave and spoken out on this when there is just a deaf ear facing this. So, um, one of the things that I that I would suggest is. For any service members in particular that are listening to this show that want to reach out to us, we currently have thousands of service members that we are working with and attempting to help preserve their careers. Because while there are definitely military members who have said, I just want to be done, I don't want to be forced to do this, there are other service members that are saying, this is my passion, this is, this is who I am and how I'm wired, I want to continue serving. But I want to comply with the memorandum as written, and currently our administration and our country does not enable me to do that. And I think that is a critical thing for Americans to be listening to. Service members are trained to follow the rule of law and to preserve our Constitution, and we are not equipping them with the ability to do this for themselves. They do not have access to the vaccine that the Department of Defense is claiming they are supposed to receive. Okay, so Tracy, I get I get that, uh, but I guess if I were a service member, I'd be saying to you, but what what can I do? What can I do? I'll contact you, but what can so, you do? I mean, do you have attorneys? Are, How does this work? So we have, we have two things going. We have attorneys that are working on cases. We actually have some um, service members who currently have, and I'm not, I, I want to just say I'm not qualified to speak to the legal aspect on this. This isn't my training, but we have some lawsuits that are currently in court right now that got filed last week. But in addition to that, we are currently working with members of Congress to position a, um, a congressional inquiry to provide transparency into the status of exactly what is available for these vaccines. And what since the FDA has gone to great lengths in this documentation that I'm happy to email people to say that the Comirnaty vaccine and the BioNTech vaccine are legally distinct entities, they don't go into any further detail. They just state in three different places that these are legally distinct vaccines and legally distinct entities. We want Congress to drill down and find out what exactly does that mean? What is the American public injecting into their body? Why is there such a lack of transparency? 
And why is everybody so insistent on demanding that the military receive a vaccination that's not available? There's a lot of questions that I think Congress can help us answer. We just yep. we just need more congressmen to step up and go forth yeah, and put the thing for you. You guys have gone. You have been uh, briefing Congress on this, haven't you? Correct, correct. And to thus far, um, Congressman Louis Gohmert is the only other congressman, in addition to Senator Johnson, who's been willing to to take up the cause on this. We would love to see that. Well, we would love to see Senator Ted Cruz. Um, work with us on this. We've reached out to Senator Ted Cruz's office. He's such an advocate. Senator Ron Johnson has, has been really solid on this issue, but it was concerning when we've been listening to the congressional staff members' offices. They're saying they don't, they're not hearing from the American public that people are concerned. I think they're not hearing about this because the media has done such a great job telling us that we have an approved vaccination, which is not the case. Well, I think also just uh, the the information block out. I mean, how's and I also think people are so fed up with Congress right now. Is sort of given up trying to communicate anything to them because they it doesn't seem to do any good. They just they seem to turn a deaf ear except for what Ron Johnson and Louis Gomer. How did how is it that they know and the rest of Congress doesn't know about this? You see, you know what, I, they, and, they've and, been you, willing to answer the phone, and that's, okay, that's so, the thing. So, Tracy, you've been actually, have you been briefing staffers or have you been briefing congressmen? Um, I've been briefing staffers. Um, and the only staff members thus far that I've seen be willing to take this forward to their congressmen are, again, Louis Gohmert and Ron Johnson staff. When, I mean, I have personally been on the phone with 36 staff members, which is great. It's been wonderful to get 36 individual staff members to talk to me. But in yeah. so many other cases, it's been email exchanges and all right, Tracy, we're out of time, but Tracy Miller is, again, the vice president of the ACRU, American Conservative Union Action Fund, and we will put the uh, information on our Facebook page as well, but also she has given you info at acruaction.com, info at acruaction.com, and I would encourage any of you in the military or other situations where you're being forced, again, to take an experimental vaccination And as I understand it, we didn't get to the Nuremberg Code, but this is serious business, and we need to fight back. Tracy, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. We've got petitions pending before the Supreme Court that identify in chapter and verse the number of times state election officials ignored or violated their state law in order to put Vice President Biden over the finish line. We know there was fraud, traditional fraud, that occurred. We know that dead people voted. But we now know, because we caught it live last time in real time, how the machines contributed to that fraud. And let me, as simply as I can, explain it. You know, the old way was to have a bunch of ballots sitting in a box under the floor, and when you needed more, you pulled them out in the dark of night. They put those ballots in a secret folder in the machines, sitting there waiting until they know how many they need. And then the machine, after the close of polls, we now know who's voted, and we know who hasn't. And I can now, in that machine, match those unvoted ballots with an unvoted voter and put them together in the machine. 
And how do we know that happened last night in real time? You saw when it got to 99% of the vote total, and then it stopped. The percentage stopped, but the votes didn't stop. What happened, and you don't see this on Fox or any other stations, but the data shows that the denominator, how many ballots remain to be counted? How else do you figure out the percentage that you have? How many remain to be counted? That number started moving up. That means they were unloading the ballots from that secret folder, matching them, matching them to the unvoted voter, and voila, we have enough votes to barely get over the finish line. We saw it happen in real time last night, and it happened on November 3rd as well. And all we are demanding of Vice President Pence is this afternoon at 1 o'clock, he let the legislatures of the state look into this so we get to the bottom of it and the American people know whether we have control of the direction of our government or not. We no longer live in a self-governing republic if we can't get the answer to this question. This is bigger than President Trump. It is the very essence of our Republican form of government, and it has to be done. And anybody that is not willing to stand up to do it does not deserve to be in the office. It is that simple. All right, Sandy Rios with you. That, uh, that was uh, a speech that many of you heard on January the 6th because uh, that was right, uh, you know, uh, that right after President Trump had spoken. That was John Eastman. Uh, you might have seen him wearing a hat, a very characteristic hat. He spoke with such passion. Why was he speaking? Because he was serving as counsel to then-President Trump, and you heard his passion. At the time, uh, and right now, he's the Claremont Institute Senior Fellow. He's also uh, author of One Nation Under God, The Pledge of Allegiance Under Attack. Uh, and before January the 6th, before that day, he was a tenured law professor of uh, and a dean at Chapman University School of Law and also worked uh, in leadership position with the Federalist Society for 20 years, but no more. We've talked so much about all of those prisoners held in the D.C. jail who are being mistreated. We've talked about many of you who went to that rally and had uh, the FBI come to your homes and invade and treat you like criminals. We've watched, you know, as the Justice Department has called you domestic terrorists and the FBI has targeted you, but there are other punishments. And John Eastman, who spoke on that day, has suffered lots of those, and now the burner is being turned up uh, on his life. And I wanted to talk to him this morning about that. John, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Sandy, for having me on. One one slight correction. I spoke before the president on January 6th, not after, but uh, very okay. important uh, Very important to get that timeline right. Because because some at the University of Colorado, where I was a visiting professor, said that my speech so so incentivized the half million people out front of the White House on the ellipse there that they immediately left and went down to the Capitol and stormed the Capitol, which is absurd, mm-hmm. of course. They, they flew in from all over the country to hear the president. And uh, and they stayed to hear the president after my comments. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to get that timeline clarified. Yes, no, mm-hmm. good, thank you. I mean, it's it's we live in a day where the the uh, the unimportant things that we say they take everything and twist it, and that's what you're experiencing right now. We want to talk about that. I just let me go back for a second, though. Why did you get involved with President Donald Trump? Well, uh, a couple things. I was not a supporter of his during the primaries in, in 2016. 
but became a supporter of his with uh, hopeful optimism that he would do the things he said and promised that he was going to do. And by and large, he did. Uh, and, and, and he also did it staying within the constitutional lines of Article II authority in the way that neither of his predecessors had done. And I thought that was impressive. And he also gave us, uh, certainly on the intermediate courts of appeals, a, 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 a number of judicial nominees and confirmed judges that I think are going to have a profound impact on restoring the notion of the rule of law in this country for a long time. Um, so when he asked me in December to represent him before the Supreme Court of the United States, I readily agreed. Well, I was thrilled, and I still am, and, but I want people to understand what an act of courage that was, because you knew then, as you know, we, most of us that were following this knew this, and I'm going to uh, take a paragraph from our mutual friend, Jay Christian's, Jay Christian Adams' article on, um, today on what's happening to you. It's called, The Mob Attacking Trump's Lawyer is More Dangerous than Anything John Eastman is Accused of Doing. That's the title. But this is uh, the, what I want to read for the, in this moment. Once upon a time, it was an honor to represent the President of the United States, no matter who the President was. Yet four big law firms refused to represent President Trump in the bogus Russia investigations in 2017. And he struggled to find lawyers before the January 2021 impeachment trial also. Law firms dropped their representation of Trump in his election challenges and even refused to allow lawyers to work on the President's matters pro bono. It, it happened. You knew that, John, and yet you took this on. Uh, but did you have any idea that the price that you would pay would be as great as it has been? Well, you know, no. I mean, when, when this first hit and I filed the brief on behalf of the president in the Texas litigation, there was a, a huge uh, cry at my university, Chapman, uh, in Southern California, to have me fired because I filed the brief in support of the president of the United States. And I actually published an article saying, if I... If I'd been asked to do a, a brief in support of Obama, they'd be throwing a ticker tape parade for me. So, so a part of what's going on here uh, is this, what I call um, distort, demonize, and then destroy tactics of the left. Uh, they distort things that are said. And we, we saw that happen over and over and over again during the Trump administration. The, the poster child example of that, I think, is his speech about the Charlottesville um, the, the Charlottesville riot, yes. um, and, and they, they falsely accused him of praising the white supremacists. That's not true, and anybody that read the transcript knows that he what he was talking about are there's you know, good reason for people to defend our history and not want to take down these monuments. There are good people on both sides of that issue. And then he said, but I'm not talking about the white supremacists. I condemn them on, you know, categorically. Uh, but 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 that that part of it was you know cut out, and then they made it look like he was praising the white supremacists. Same thing was true with the infamous or Georgia call. Um, they, they cut out the context. He said we have already identified 150,000 illegal votes that were cast in Georgia. All you have to do is confirm 11,000 of them. Find those you know just 11,000 out of the 150, and I win. But they distorted that to say, go and make up five, you know, eleven thousand votes so that I win. I mean, and then they and then they disseminated in the media, um, and, uh, and 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 then the media now has confirmed the false story they put out, and so then they weaponized it. This is what Pelosi. This is what Pelosi said. Now she was accusing the Republicans of doing that, but that's projection. This is what they do, and uh, the same thing. Same thing's true with the bar complaint that's been filed against me. By the way, you know, one of the people that signed the letter, uh, cover letter on the complaint was Erman Chemerinsky. 
Now, Erwin Chemerinsky in 2016 urged federal courts to invalidate the election by holding that the Electoral College itself was unconstitutional. Another uh, person involved in that complaint, because he cited uh, the podcast I did with him is cited in it, uh, was Professor Lawrence Lessig. You may recall Lessig was a candidate for president in 2016, kind of laughably. Um, but he created a foundation to essentially try and convince Trump electors not to vote for Trump in order to, in order to overturn the election. Uh, it, with, 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 they weren't admitting that the election or, or, or claiming that the election had been fraudulently won by Trump. They just didn't like the result and they wanted to overturn it. And yet, you know, they're going after me because I think I think the illegalities that were admitted in the conduct of the election may well have been sufficient to have altered the results. And what we wanted to do is have a chance to look at that. Uh, you know, so it, it's rather extraordinary. The people doing the distorting are, are, are accusing me of the very things that they had done just four years earlier. Well, of course, that is, the, that is the modus operandi of the left. They always do that. I've said that for years. Whatever they're accusing us of, that's exactly what they're doing. But I want to let me make something clear here, John. Uh, we've alluded to it, but I want to spell it out a little bit better. You, now, minor, you were with Chapman. You were, again, the dean at the Chapman University School of Law. I don't know if you ended up—I know there was— uh, people wanted you to be fired, step down. But you did step down, but I don't know if they released you. Can you say? For whatever so, reason, so, you're not yeah. there anymore. Yeah, so I wasn't dean anymore. I had stepped down as dean to run for attorney general back in 2010. Uh, but I was a tenured member of the faculty, and I held an endowed chair called the Henry Salvatore Professorship. Um, but, the, but the intensity of the, uh, and the vitriol from the main campus faculty it's just going to be an impossible place to live, uh, you know. And and the president put out a statement um, that said that he had no ground on which to fire me, which is true. Um, but then somebody inserted into the statement, unless he's convicted of a felony or uh, or disbarred. Now, in my view, that was just an open invitation for people to file frivolous bar complaints. And the California bar, I hope, in the current complaint that's now been filed against me, they do the right thing. But it's it's a fairly politicized operation, and you know, did I really want to stake my my future career and retirement income on 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 you know one of those complaints not being granted, or even if that wasn't the case, you know, having students planted in every one of my classes for the next four or five years until I retired, filing frivolous complaints that I use the wrong pronoun, or you know, when we're talking about the the Civil War amendments and the race affirmative action cases, you know. Uh, or the abortion cases that one has to do in constitutional law, having some student complain uh, that, you know, that they were triggered by, you know, by, by even talking about those issues. So it was just going to be no way to, to spend the final years of my teaching career. Um, and so, uh, so uh, I'm trying to be very careful here because it's confidential, but I'm using the word that was put out in a statement. We negotiated a settlement by which I retired. So in the course of a very short time, after January the 6th, you were no longer with Chapman University as a law professor. And uh, then I want to talk in a few minutes. Not right now, let's save this discussion, but you also were sort of uh, subjected to terrible harassment to the Federalist Society, which are supposed to be our friends. But let's don't, let's don't go there yet. I want to talk now, because I, you did mention it, so let's explain. They're trying to disbar you now. That's what you were saying. You alluded to it. They've, they've, I don't know, filed a complaint against you. Is there more than one complaint? 
there's one complaint with lots of people signing the cover letter saying this should be this should be uh, investigated. The complaint is based on the brief I filed on behalf of the president in the Texas case, falsely claiming that I made state false statements of facts and law in the complaint. That's not true. Um, it, and it's uh, and it's based on the cert petition I filed on behalf of the president's campaign, uh, uh, seeking review of three different Pennsylvania Supreme Court decisions that gutted protections against fraud in the uh, Pennsylvania election code. Uh, and then the third uh, thing they complain of is the speech you played at the beginning of the program. Um, uh, and I will say this. I mean, you know, it's admitted that illegalities occurred and that state officials violated state law. It's admitted, you know, we have unrebutted evidence, both expert and sworn evidence, in a number of cases of traditional kinds of fraud. Uh, the experts that had reviewed uh, conducted an audit of the machines up in Michigan advised me that they what they saw the machines were capable of, and they saw it happening in Georgia the night before. Now, I will say uh, that issue I think remains unresolved. Uh, I, I think I think there are challenges to that expert opinion that have some merit, um, but it's not been resolved one way or the other. Uh, but at the time, uh, I was I had met with the actual experts, and and they provided that information. And by the way, the the, the machine's own manual doesn't call it a secret folder; it calls it a suspense folder. So you know, I, I think that's a that's a, a different a difference without any uh, without any significance. Um, uh, it's also the case that uh, that that percentage, you know, the evidence that they had given me saying we saw. The percentage freeze, but the number of ballots keep coming in, and therefore, uh, new ballots were being added to the denominator as well. It's the only way you, you increase the number in the numerator without changing the percentage. Now, the AP has said that well, they their 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 denominator is based on an estimate at the beginning, and they adjust it as they as they learn more. Now, that's true, um, but my statistician said it can't possibly be that they were as far off on that estimate as they ended up being. And no mathematician worth his salt would be that far off. So again, that's that's a disputed issue. I think I think it warrants further review. And the audits that we've seen in, in Georgia, for example, have identified a lot of ballots that were processed through and counted twice. They've identified thirty some thousand ballots of people that voted illegally because they uh, they they voted at their home or old home address uh, that from which they had moved more than 30 days before the election and therefore were ineligible to vote at that address. So it's those kind of things that got shuffled under the rug, never got to, to, to a hearing in court. Um, and, and if all of that's true, and in fact uh, the, the election was illegally uh, certified for a guy who did not actually win, then that's a serious problem. And as I said in that thing, this ha- you know, we no longer have a Republican form of government if we don't get the answers to these questions. John, hold on just one second. No, we can't. uh, So we got to take a break. My guest is John Eastman. He spoke at January 6th. He was representing President Trump. You still hear the passion in his voice. Thank God for that. But he's being punished, and we're not even done with this story. Sandy Reels in the morning on AFR. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Our exciting adventures and boldest endeavors have not yet begun. My fellow Americans, for our movement, for our children, and for our beloved country, and I say this, 
Despite all that's happened, the best is yet to come. So we're going to, we're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol and we're going to try and give the Democrats are hopeless. They're never voting for anything. Not even one vote. But we're going to try and give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help. We're tr going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I want to thank you all. God bless you and God bless America. Thank you all for being here. This is incredible. Thank you very much. All right, that was President Trump on that fateful day, January 6th, and for that he was impeached. Uh, they uh, claimed that he caused the so-called insurrection, which is a whole other thing we'll have to talk about someday, John, on a different show. But right now I want to talk about uh, John Eastman, who was the counsel to the president. He spoke at that rally as well. And I think a lot of people think, John, that um, that Vice President Pence— uh, should have just overturned—he he should overturn the election. He had the power and that you advised him to do that. And that's one of the things that they are coming after you for. And according to your own institute, Claremont, they came out swinging on your behalf and said that's absolutely false. So tell us what it was that you did advise President Vice President Pence to do. Well, and, and, and it's important to understand the origin of this story. Uh, it was a book by uh, Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, um, based on an internal uh, preliminary draft of a memo I did. It was the beginning of looking at all of the scenarios that had been proposed from all sorts of people um, about how things might might transpire on January 6th in the counting of electoral votes. What happens if nobody gets the 270, goes to the House? What you know, all of these things. And uh, uh, I laid out, ultimately in the full memo, all of the scenarios of what was possible uh, under the Constitution and how it all might play out. That was not an advice memo because it had, you know, 12 different con contradictory <laughs> scenarios. It was to lay out the scenario. Um, the advice I gave to the, to the vice president in the Oval Office with the president and then two of the vice president's staff members on January 4th, the president, of course, said some people are saying you have the authority just to decide which electoral votes to count or not. And the vice president turned to me and asked me point blank, do you think I have that authority? And I said point blank, quote, I mean, it's like burned into my memory. Uh, it's an open question, Mr. Vice President. I happen to think it's the weaker argument. But even if you had such authority, given that none of the state legislatures had, had certified the alternate slate of electors, it would be foolish to exercise that authority. And I said, you know, so... At the end of the day, the advice that was given to him, and you can you heard it on in the in my remarks that you played at the outset of the program. You, the president said the same thing on on Wednesday in his remarks. The advice was to accede to requests that had come in from a number of state legislators, saying, you know, we we've, we've been barred from coming into special session to address the clear illegalities in the conduct of our election. Now that we're back into full session, normal session, give us a week to assess the impact of the illegality so that we can then advise you on whether the votes were properly certified or not. The Pennsylvania uh, Senate pro tem of the Pennsylvania Senate was quite explicit. He said, our 
certification of our electors was improperly done. Give us some time to assess whether the illegalities had an impact on the election, and we'll let you know. And one of the scenarios I put out in the memo says, you know, if he does that and they come back and say the impact is smaller than the margin, Biden wins, then Biden would be declared president. Um, So, you know, this is the kind of thing that lawyers do all the time. Lay out all the scenarios, all the options, present it to the client, and then give advice on the strength or weakness of each option. Um, So it was not me urging him to unilaterally uh, overturn the election as has been acclaimed, or to launch a coup. It was, we've got acknowledged illegality in the conduct of this election. Is there anything that we can do about it? And the thing I recommended was to delay and let the legislators, under Article 2 of the Constitution, have plenary power to determine the manner for choosing presidential electors. Is there anything that they can do about it if, in fact, the illegality had altered the results of their election? John, I, because there's so many details, I, this is a detail I can't remember. I think I know, but clarify for me. Uh, so the vice president did not follow your advice. He accepted the electors. But did he do that before the, they recessed the joint session and they went to their chambers and before the January 6th protesters were heard outside and all of the all hell broke loose with that? What was the order of things there? Well, he had rejected the advice because our advice was to, you know, uh, convene a joint session and then announce that there were a number of state legislators that had requested a, an adjournment so that they could now, back in a normal session, assess the impact of the illegality. Uh, and he, and he, at the outset, uh, chose not to do that. That was before any of the disruption okay. and before well, that's any interesting. of the that's good to know. capital. That makes it worse to me. It makes it much worse, actually. Yeah. But, um, yeah, because I just think it was just a lack of courage or a political calculation that I think is inexcusable. But that's my thoughts. That's my opinion. All right, let's talk about, you know, speaking of the verse that comes to my mind, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Uh, you, you received some deep wounds from the Federalist Society. And let me just say, Federalist Society is supposedly the conservative arm of the legal profession. And they've done some great things through the years. Many of my best friends, a part of the Federalist Society. Uh, Federalist Society under Leonard Leo's leadership was the one who handpicked all of these uh, supposedly sterling Supreme Court nominees that we were excited about, which John believed in too. He was part of the Federalist Society. But what did they do after this happened, John? Well, and you know, I, I, I want to be very careful here because some very good friends of mine and uh, one of the volunteer leaders, a guy named Jeremy Rosen, who was the longtime head of the Los Angeles Lawyers Chapter, um, shortly after January 6th, um, sent a letter out and made it public, uh, just a, a screed and diatribe against me, full of false claims and innuendos, essentially confirming the leftist false narrative of, of the January 6th story. Um, and it was, it, was, it was scurrilous. Now, uh, to their credit, uh, you know, and he demanded that I be removed from leadership. Uh, my membership in the society revoked. I not be allowed to speak on their behalf, what have you. And and to the national leadership's credit, they did not do that. Uh, uh, they they kept me in as uh, as chairman of the Federalism and Separation of Packers group. They they declined any request to block me from the Speaker's Bureau and whatever. And for that, I'm deeply grateful. 
But I was also, over the course of the year, uh, disinvited from several events I'd long been participating in. And, uh, and, and they're, you know, I, and they're, they're sitting on a powder keg. I understand it. There's a whole lot of the corporate law membership of the federal society that are part of the problem. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think one of the reasons there's such a vitriolic hatred of Donald Trump is that he was punching back against the bureaucracy and a, and a cabal, uh, uh, an inside the beltway cabal that had, that had become so powerful. Um, and, and subsumed a lot of the folks on the conservative movement side as well. And so the, the national leadership, I think, are trying to like, walk a tightrope. I do disagree with the way they resolve it, which is to just stay on the sidelines and let the dust settle for a year or two. Um, uh, Winston Churchill has a wonderful, wonderful quotation. Uh, the lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has an opportunity to even get his pants on. Um, and with the, with the incoming flack that I and some others have been taking, um, you know, we're not in a situation where we can afford to have our friends standing on the sidelines. Uh, and on, on this issue, look, if I'm right about all this, and I think I am, um, uh, uh, that the election was stolen um, and that there was a massive co- campaign. By the way, uh, a major article in The New Yorker, uh, you know, kind of outlined the collusion between big tech and the Democrat Party and big law uh, to pull this steal the election thing off and, and patted themselves on the back after having accomplished it. Uh, if all of that's true, um, that we're in a war uh, against a combination of a deadly combination of Marxists um, and, and, and social media oligarchs and, and corporate um, rent-seeking welfare uh, powers uh, to stop the American people from controlling the direction of their government. Uh, and that's a fight that we can't afford to have our friends on the sidelines on, it seems to me. Now, the, the leadership of the Federal Society has decided otherwise, that, that maybe when the dust settles on this, we can get back to to talking about these things in a more sensible way. But it's just it's just too hyper-partisan at the moment. But, but you know, again, I, it's on that point that I disagree with them. I think it's precisely because this is the most significant issue of our day. The, 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 the politicization of the law and the process I think is one of the greatest challenges we've faced in our nation's history, getting close to uh, the context of 1860. Not there yet, and I hope it never gets there. But these are the stakes, and um, I don't think we can afford to have people sitting on the sidelines on it. Certainly not when when one side of the argument is able to you know spur you know spew scurrilous attacks without the opportunity of a platform to respond uh, to the other side. Yes, and uh, I should and explain. And that's my, yeah, yeah, that's my big disagreement with it. Yeah, I, I just should also say that uh, in Claremont's statement in your defense and their defense, uh, the, the the media, the left, has gone after Claremont with a vengeance, with its leadership. Uh, I've seen all kinds of stuff, uh, bad things about Claremont, which is a conservative, you know, think tank. Heaven forbid. And so, uh, uh, John, right. they've come after you, they've come after Claremont, and they've muzzled you guys so that you can't even make your case uh, to your fellow attorneys, you can't. You've been disinvited to various association meetings where you can't defend. So, and social media has censored you as well, haven't they? Well, yeah, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, anytime uh, you know, I talk about these things at a, a forum, that video is immediately taken down. Uh, yeah, so, so you know, Thomas Jefferson had a wonderful thing: we can tolerate false statements. Uh, as long as the truth has an opportunity to rebut them. Um, 
But what we now are seeing is the false statements take root, and the truth is not given an opportunity to rebut. Uh, and that's no way to get to the truth on, on policy matters or disputes. But we also saw the same thing happen in the election challenges last year. I mean, how many times have you heard, well, 90 courts looked at this and they all rejected Trump's evidence? Oh, yes. That's just a blatant lie. Uh, very few of the courts even got to the evidence, and those only on small snippets of it. Most of them were dismissed on various jurisdictional grounds, some accurately, some speciously, um, but, but they never got to the evidence. And the evidence is overwhelming. Thousands of pages of sworn affidavits of illegal conduct affecting the number of ballots that were being counted. In Georgia, uh, our good friend Cleta Mitchell's case down there, filed on December 4th, by law they're supposed to have a judge appointed within 48 or 72 hours, and, and, and a month later there's still not a judge appointed. And, you know, we finally filed a federal court action on New Year's Eve to try and force the judge to get appointed. And, uh, you know, that was on uh, Thursday night, New Year's Eve. The following business day, Monday, January 4th, a judge was quickly appointed, scheduled the first status conference for January 8th, two days after the joint session of Congress. And then the case got dismissed on January 7th as moot. So these are the kind of things that are true. Uh, that her thousands of pages of evidence never got a hearing, never got the light, saw the light of day. And when the truth isn't allowed uh, to, to have its say and to be tested in the advocacy form of a court, uh, then people wonder, you know, it, it should be no wonder why people are suspicious of, of you know, the results that are being spoon fed to us. Exactly. And John, let me just say one, one thing that proves your point, even Fox, which was, is the network that so many people depended on before the election, uh, it refuses to let their anchors talk about the election and it was stolen. It, we're told it's the big lie. Social media edits out everything. That should tell you something. It should tell you something. And I want to also say we didn't get to even the personal attacks against John's home the harassment, the dangerous family has been placed in, and so and so on, so on, on and on it goes. John Eastman, uh, for those of you that are people of prayer, and I know most of you are that listen to this show, we need to pray for him and his family. And John, we thank God for your courage. If there's anything we can do further to help you, um, please let us know. And also, Sandy, I want Sandy, to... let me let, let me add. We got a new Quickly. website that should be up. We should be up today. CCJLitigation.com. If people want to help with our litigation defense fund. CCJLitigation.com.